this last week, we left off in the section that we really covered with this, to me, fascinating because it's an area that I don't think about much. Puffs of smoke, magic, uh, maybe legs being lengthened or something like that. Uh, Anyways, whatever it is, that it was amazing, the people of Samaria, this magical world, which we still live in. It's still a very magical place, um, even in this sense. But we saw that there was, in, in leaving off, there is the preaching of the kingdom of God and the reception of it, which in that happening, there's demons coming out of people. And there is the overthrow of Satan and his power. And and those people who had believed were told one thing about them, or a couple things about them, namely that they were were baptized in the name of Jesus. Now before I begin, I just want to say that all doctrine is important to get correctly. However, I think in this day and age, the, the position of the elders and of the church, namely being called Reformed, uh, specifically Reformed Baptist, but that would we'd be a smaller portion. Uh, there are not many uh, Reformed believers out there. It's a, it's a smaller segment of those who would self-identify this way. I think this is the good and right gospel thing. And in the Reformed tradition, I think it's very important for Baptists, Presbyterians, even even conservative Anglicans to unite. Actually, maybe even to join our churches completely together. I think that would be wise in our degraded Christian era. Uh, so I just commend that to you. And, and there are some differences at this point. I think it's right for those who practice infant baptism and those who practice what's called credo-baptism in the Reformed tradition to join forces if they can. And so this is a place where we can lovingly disagree or agree as brothers and sisters, and I just want to commend having some uh, Catholicity, as we call it, in this point to not divide churches over the issue of baptism. Having said that, and extending the right hand of fellowship, I will point out that nonetheless, I'm still going to preach this from my particular conscience and my perspective, though I I am very in debt to men like R.C. Sproul and others who would disagree with me on this point. But as we are told, uh, I want to point out just this process, what had happened, The, the kingdom had come. And people had believed the message of, of Simon previously. They had been caught up in a world of magic. Really a whole worldview of how spirits works and, and things like that. It doesn't tell us the extent of it, but nonetheless it is a whole worldview. And now the gospel comes and there are people who believe that gospel. They are won over by this triumph that is in Christ and the power which they worshipped previously has been set aside and turned away from and they are holding to that is a greater power. The Spirit of God had illuminated their minds to understand the things of the Scripture and they are called believers. They believed. So how does anybody know that they are believers? Well, here in Acts, uniquely, 
they were able to, they probably saw some sort of sign that is demons were coming out. There's probably tongues involved, things like that. But fundamentally, just as we would experience the spirit and coming to faith, if you came to faith later in life, uh, later than a young child, you might remember that time when you became a believer. What you would be able to demonstrate in your own words is that you understand this message. Previously, you held to a different one, and now you can say, albeit simplistically, what the gospel is, what the message of Jesus is and the kingdom of God so, conversely, I think we're warranted to say that in becoming believers and being able to articulate this gospel, on the other hand, they also would have disavowed those things which they former, formerly believed, the, the magic that was being practiced and their adherence to this. And we could just simply go to Acts chapter 18 and see this exemplified. That is when the pagans in Ephesus are converted, we're told many of those who were now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices, being remorseful over the fact that they had sinned in these ways. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. That is, when the gospel comes and we are told that they believe it, we are to understand that they had then also rejected That message which they had proclaimed before. No longer is Simon the great power of God. No, the power of God is found in Jesus Christ and in his gospel. And it changed their practices there. And it changes everything about their lives. Further, we're not to think that anybody was baptized in behalf of another. Or that somebody's baptized on the basis of another's faith since the text specifically specifies that those who believed, both men and women, individuals who now could say, I trust the Lord Jesus and reject the thing that I formerly believed, those specifically were immersed in the waters of baptism. We're also told that Simon had believed and been baptized. Simon, this is like a, can, can you believe it? Even Simon came to faith. This is the guy who is leading them in, in demonic activity, literally causing, uh, being the, the means by which people are being possessed. <laughs> and he comes to believe and is baptized. It's an it's amazing thing. Now, what we might call this, a term that you are probably familiar with, with is a credible profession of faith. People are baptized upon a credible profession of faith. And we can demonstrate this by the impossibility of the contrary. Okay, So, for example, if Simon came up to Philip, who was preaching, Simon the magician came up to Philip, who was preaching, and asked, to be baptized, and Philip just said, well, what is it you're believing about Jesus? He's like, I don't know. I just, I'm in awe about the whole thing. Dunk me. Uh, Or if he said, well, I believe Jesus is a God now among millions of gods, but he's the greatest of gods. 
Do you think that's what Luke and the Holy Spirit intends by they were believing? Absolutely not. No, they, they had embraced, even in a simple way, the truth of the scriptures such that they could accurately proclaim Jesus for themselves. That is, they understood and could confess the gospel. That's what it meant to be believed. So they made a, a credible profession, as it were. Now, <clears throat> some people get confused here at this. I just want to make a side point here from the main thing that I want to talk about. Some people do get confused about the, the difference that's presented here in Acts from Matthew 28. Some of you will know that in, in Acts, they are baptized in the name of Jesus. And in Matthew 28, Jesus tells the, the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What I want to authoritatively say is that these are not contradictory or different instructions. In fact, the issue is really with us and not understanding what the Bible means by name. Let me give you one super quick example that you probably all know. Psalm 23, you've heard, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What is, what is name, which occurs all over the Old and New Testament, what does the name of God refer to? The name of God in the Bible refers to anything whereby God reveals himself. He makes himself known. So let me give you a few categories. Titles like Christ or Savior or Lord, these titles reveal the name of God or maybe his attributes. His omniscience is a part of his name according to his divinity or uh, Jesus sleeping and being tired, resting in God's care and provision on the boat. That would be his, div- his human nature. And that would be part of his name. Name also refers to his ordinances or his words. So whether it be his commands, teachings, prophecies, promises, all of that refers to the name of Jesus. And lastly, we could say that, that the works of, of Yahweh God from Old Testament to New Testament, since Jesus is the eternal son who is a part and participates in the one name that is the one being that is God, everything that is revealed about God comprehensively is, is beautifully reduced to simple phrase, the name or his name. Everything we know about God is captured in a single word, name. It's really neat. It's helpful because it's trying not to isolate one thing that's in God, but rather everything that that God is, and that's what's referred. So when you say the name of Jesus, well, Jesus means absolutely nothing at all unless he's connected to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They are all one God. And so we shouldn't understand this as something different. It's just another way of communicating that people had specifically in relation to the, the message of Jesus, which was not known before he came into flesh, was preached. Okay, so that's, that's a side note. But now what I want to get to is an extended application. I know 
<clears throat> that this is, is, a, is a, a Baptist issue, but <clears throat> I want to talk about delaying, delaying baptism, delaying baptism, because I find Baptist pastors and laymen who start thinking about baptism, this is a super, super muddy area, and I want to clear it up for you and give you some categories because of what is practiced here in this text. What we see is there's a, what I've called a credible and what has been called a credible profession of faith, and then pretty immediately thereafter, a baptism. So if you're receiving the word in, in this church, in the course of time, previously I know that I've aimed at convincing you that daily family worship along with your, your spouse or your children or whoever might be in the home is a, is a necessary thing. You, you ought to do that. I would aim at six days a week. You could do seven if you wanted. Along with a weekly Sunday observance. You should be here every single Sunday without fail unless somebody's died. You, you should prioritize the Lord's Day different than any other day of the week. And that should be um, a staple in your mind over the course of time. I also hope for some of you who don't have kids or who do have kids um, or even thinking about uh, your grandkids, I would like to convince all of you to probably this, the, the catechism that we're doing, but to catechize your children thoroughly and to uh, have them be prepared with a, a robustly Christian answer to all the basic issues of the faith. Um, I also, in the course of time, uh, would love for everyone to come to a united mind according to the education, getting, getting the most Christian education you possibly could, even if that requires changing jobs, moving states, whatever you need to do. Under those conditions, if the church culture as a whole did that. Almost every one of our children would be baptized at an early age and therefore, or would be because they'd be professing believers, most likely. That is historically true and experientially that's true. And theologically, I think there's a Loctite case for that. However, that means you have to ask the question as a Baptist, well, when... Do I admit my child to baptism? And the simple answer is you verify a credible profession of faith. But that's fuzzy to some of you because you don't actually know what faith is. Some of us actually go, what, what is faith? What are the parts of it? And so I just want to call to mind the confession, the 1689, chapter 14, verse or uh, paragraph 2 says this. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. You could just summarize all of salvation that way. Accepting, receiving, resting. That's, that's what faith is. So it's not this vague uh, you, you guys will know, I think we bought one of these, well, I didn't buy it, but my wife, I think, bought a pillow 
at Christmas time one time, uh, and we imported our own meaning to it because that's what you do with this slogan. I believe that it's a Christmas pillow. It's like related to Santa, really. But uh, that's a vague term. Uh, People can say, I believe, and what they mean by that is fuzzy. That's why we don't know how to answer this question. So the three parts, accept, receive, rest. The child must accept the reality of Jesus Christ as true. It's true over opposed to false, of course. This means that there is an actual doctrinal content that needs to be known. If it's, if it's true, there's a, a body of teaching in the scriptures that, that must be spoken and understood as to be true. But they also must not just say it's true. You can say it's true and say, well, I reject that too. You must say, I receive that. The, you must receive the, the doctrine of the gospel as true for yourself. I believe this. It is something not rejected, but rather embraced. Lastly, they must also have a, and Calvin does this really well, if you want to look at his faith chapter in the Institutes. um, There is also the necessity to believe that, that you can trust these things. That is, you can put rest, or you can put your weight upon them, be confident in them. You have to believe that his promises can be banked on. And so you, you trust in those with all of your life. You hear threatenings from God from the scriptures. And you, because you believe those, tremble at them. Or you hear his commands and you, you dedicate by gladly obeying them. That shows that you are resting on those, that you actually put your weight on those. Because it's very easy to profess to believe something. And then when your life doesn't match up with that, it shows that you're you're not really resting in in those things that you and I might confess. So that's what faith is. Uh, Accepting, receiving, resting. And we could break it down in other ways. Now... I want to put up a a triangular fence, as it were, uh, because the Bible is not, it doesn't have a proof text for this. So it is the, uh, um, trying to apply the scriptures as best as we can. And sometimes the best way to say what, what we can and should do is by putting up borders and boundaries to say, well, we, we can't go past this line. So I want to set up a triangular fence for you to give good parameters for Baptists to think about this. We're looking for a credible profession, not a mature profession, not an unclear profession, and not a credible profession plus years of fruit. We're, we're not looking for a mature profession, an unclear profession, or credible profession plus years of fruit. So first, we are not waiting until a child has been fully catechized and can precisely articulate good theology before baptism. Baptism is not a cumulative test of doctrine as much as that would, is great. On the, uh, to, to emphasize this too, our children, if we're doing the faith right, they should know more than, they should know what we hold dear and know 20 years before they're our age. 
They should know what you know doctrinally, and that should be dear to them as well as to us. But this is way beyond what's required for baptizing them. Also, it's not to be an unclear profession, like I emphasize with Simon. Oh, he's one of many gods. This would not be an... uh, And there's other ways where if we're talking about little children... I have a little, a little child that is able to confess the faith in ways that are beyond some adults, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, there's some unclarity about the um, amount that it connects. I'm going to use my, my youngest to, to demonstrate what I mean. <clears throat> so, for example, my, my daughter can recite the answer, at least half the answer to the question, how may we know there is a God? The light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. And, but his word and spirit only do it fully and effectually, she says, effectually, for the salvation of sinners. Now, <clears throat> there is a, a gap between being able to parrot those words and, and having them uh, flow from their heart. And insofar as it's unclear whether or not those are their words, we have to have caution to say, well, I don't, that's not credible quite yet. So if, if, G, if somebody came into my office in another regard as an adult and said that, that they had an in, encounter with Jesus, but they, they couldn't tell me anything about him other than maybe he was a good teacher. We wouldn't accept that as a credible profession of faith. It, it, it shows no knowledge of sin. shows no knowledge of, re, of repentance or uh, who, what Jesus Christ has done or that he's, he's God. Right? There are things that remain unclear. Yes, Jesus was the best and greatest of all teachers, of course. But he's not merely that. And so <clears throat> we are to... Even at a basic level, so my, my daughter, again, when she gets in trouble, she not, may not understand that the world and our very own nature testifies to our guilt before God. That's what that question is talking about, uh, that catechism question is talking about. But she does know that when she gets in trouble, that that is related, that she is sinful. She understands that. So therefore, she'll say in a very basic way, you give me <laughs> forgive you give me yeah, yes i forgive you and and then we will pray and confess our sin she gets sin at a basic level and so we're not looking at well they can cite romans one and tell why no man has an uh, apologetic answer for why they are not guilty before god <laughs> we're not looking for that we're looking for comp basic comprehension about the irreducible elements of the gospel, who God is, what, who Jesus is, what he has done, what, what our problem is, why we need that salvation, and so forth. Now, comprehension will vary from child to child and from person to person, but there must be an accurate knowledge and understanding of the tenets of the gospel. Now, so not a mature faith, not an un, not an unclear not a excuse me mature profession not an unclear profession and and not a credible profession plus years of fruit 
It would be wrong for us to delay baptism until there's a resume of Christian service. A hundred hours of evangelism. One thousand hour one thousand public prayers with others who could verify. Two years of church attendance with less than five percent uh attend tardiness. No truancy. <laughs> Those might be good. And you actually might want to strive for those things, absolutely, as, as one who loves the Lord Jesus. But we're not looking for an abundant harvest of fruit. We're actually just looking for genuine fruit, re- real fruit that is, is provable to be authentic. I'll never forget there was in Bible college a, a time I, we had a Sunday school in our church and before service. And I was in like what they call the prayer corner. I just prayed for everybody by name and stuff like that. And one, uh, at one point I was asked, this was in a fourth grade class to teach. And I was super jazzed because that's why I'm in school. And I'm like, okay, cool. I get to preach the gospel to these kids. And I forget where we were in the Bible, but I preached in that class <laughs> and, and, uh, it was it was preaching. It wasn't it wasn't Sunday school teaching. It was it was a difference there. And <clears throat> after that, though the semester went by, and I think it was a month or two after they had a volunteers like thank you for for participating. And and there was a a mother who who brought her boy up to me and said, "Do you remember such and so?" Uh, I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I don't remember such and so. And she brought him up to thank me because. On that day, the boy heard the gospel for the 100,000th time, yet in that time, unbeknownst to me, I didn't really even know the kid, he went home and told his mom that he fully understood, the like he understood it now and believed it. And over the couple months in between her coming back, she had informed me that ever since that day, there was genuine fruitfulness of Christian faith in his life, two months, a month of, of testing, as it were, or just beholding to see what is actually there. So I think he was baptized later, right after that, not, not too long. But that is to say, I think that's a, a commendable example, not withholding the sacraments of baptism, because that's what it is. When, when someone is a believer, we are withholding that right which Christ has commanded them to do. We must not, insofar as we are able, not longer than we have to, withhold baptism and also the Lord's Supper from young believers. I submit to you, we need to maintain a credible profession of the faith is the key that unlocks the door to the baptismal and scoots the seat up to the table immediately and subsequently after that. So... This poses problems, too, because Simon's baptized. Simon's baptized, and every Christian has to deal with this. It it appears, and I'll just posit that what's in the text here that we'll preach probably next week, this here, it shows that he's not a genuine believer, yet he was baptized and made a credible profession. And so we encounter that this problem that baptism doesn't create or effect a new creation. It, do, it doesn't make you new. 
in the sense that we talk about regeneration. Everybody who trusts the gospel has gone from death to life. They've been raised a spiritual being. But baptism doesn't grant this newness of life just by going under the water. I'll remind you that 1 Peter says baptism saves. There's more to that sentence. Baptism saves in this sense, not as it creates a new life, not that it, it uh, we could say, not, it doesn't justify us before God. It doesn't make us right with him. It doesn't regenerate or justify, it, but it sanctifies. And in that case, in making us holy and setting us apart unto God, it is an actual testimony from God himself about us that our conscience has been cleansed by the forgiveness of sins that is in Christ Jesus, our sin bearer. We have gone under the waters in testimony to us that God has cleansed us from all of our sins. So we can look back on our baptism and say, my sins have been covered. The problem is that Simon's at some points will be baptized unintentionally. (laughs) We will baptize people who are not really regenerate, not really believers, though they appear to be. You can think of Jesus' parable. There's the seed that's sown on the ground. One of them gets eaten up real quick. Two others spring up for a time, or they're a type of temporary believers which are talked about in scripture. They, they spring up, but they didn't really have roots and therefore they were swept away or choked off or what have you. <clears throat> therefore, those who are in the church profess the faith at one time, who we look on the outside because we don't see the matters of the heart, say, they're my brother or sister in Christ. But then they come to embrace some perilous Sins and, and continue in an unrepentant way, unwilling to give up some sort of serious sin. Well, the, the solution and the remedy of that is, is not to do anything else, but rather excommunicate them. That is the procedure. That's how you, you, uh, you show who it is is in the church and who it is is not in the church. Who it is is are true professing believers and and who are not through excommunication from not allowing the participation in the supper because that's what believers do. But people who do not repent, people who do not confess their sins, people who will not be dissuaded from lying or adultery or these sorts of things, they who persist unashamedly in sin, well, they are not believers and so they ought not to partake in the ordinance of the church that is the supper i hear well so that's that's the solution to the problem of baptizing unbelievers the the second one is just to recognize the fact that that we do not see the heart and we are not to identify the members of the elect (laughs) as though we could do that anyways and then baptize because sometimes it only becomes apparent 20 years down the line, something that we can't see. Rather, we are to exercise righteous 
excommunication from the church. Now, someone might object because excommunication is not a word that that some of you have heard in the past, but some someone might object or embraced or practiced. Some might object. What's the point when other congregate? They're just going to go anyways, and other congregations will receive unrepentant people without any questions asked, and they're even going to talk bad and, and, and look down on us for doing that. The answer that you should always ask is not what other people think of you. The, the, the question you should always ask is, well, what does God tell us? What does the scriptures clearly teach? Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, etc., etc., all plainly teach that inevitability of there being unbelievers in the church who at some point prove that to be the case and are to be disciplined accordingly. It is our job to not worry about men and what they think about us. It's rather our job to know what God thinks about faithfulness and what we must do in light of that. God delights in faithfulness and true blessing only comes from obedience to God. Temporary blessing and fleeting things come from not doing what God says that doesn't actually last. We want those rewards that can't be taken away. Scripture, let me give you a second solution to this. Scripture teaches more than this, (laughs) And, and this is a glorious thing. Scripture shows us and teaches us that the, the elect can get seriously entangled into sin. There are real genuine believers that can actually get caught in an adulterous relationship and be led seriously astray for a time. You ladies who went through James t- together uh, recently at, at our house, We'll know that at the end of James, there is the exhortation to go after the person who's wandered away from the truth. And and even the possibility of that person being saved from their sin, being saved from, from the fires of hell, as it were. And that person is, is exercising grace and calling them to the truth. They are saved from death. I've witnessed the Lord do this uh, in a church before. I've witnessed him not do this, but excommunication righteously practiced by a church and observed the way that the scriptures teach can be the very means by which somebody who has been hardened in their sin has the, the gong of conviction rung loudly, whereby they awaken to the fact that they've gone asleep in sin, as it were. They have become numb to things that they should be sensitive to. This is the actual means by which you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, whereby the church, the majority of people, set aside the man who took his father's wife, and they weren't, he had repented, and they weren't receiving him back. And the exhortation of the apostles, receive him back. He's repented. Excommunication in its best form and its goal is to restore somebody to repentance, to, to say loudly, you must turn the other way. And so the end of it is blessing and glory and goodness. Because of this, and we're just reflecting on all sorts of different things, what I want to close is with the exhortation to be faithful. 
Be faithful in hope. When you think about faithfulness, you should not think of it apart from joy. Faithfulness begets blessing. Period. It does. If you are unfaithful, it begets sorrow. And so faithfulness, especially in areas which seem hard to us, seem rigid is another word, tend to conjure up the feelings that I don't want to do that. (laughs) But really, we should think of God's smile, God's delight and the hope of reward in heaven. God everywhere tells us that faithfulness results in fruitfulness. Those who persevere under trial receive the crown of life, James says. To Titus, Paul writes, I want to insist you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why? These things are excellent. Well, of course they are. But listen to this. They are profitable. That is, they, they bring fruitfulness with them. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that whoever labors in the Lord does not labor in vain. Psalm 1 tells us not how we become the blessed man, not how we become the blessed man, but rather what the blessed man does and the results of being a blessed man. Flourishing, abundance, fruitfulness in every season. Be faithful. For in due season you will reap a harvest.